I also really love rom-coms. I also like dance movies too. Hello and welcome to Entertaining the Idea, Season 2, Episode Number 5. I am your co-host, John McStravick, and I'm joined by my other co-host. Hey, I'm Anthony Hudax. Hey, Anthony, Tony, uh, how's the... It's going, it's going. How's the lockdown, the uh, work-from-home lockdown 2020 going for you? Oh, okay. I'll tell you a quick story. We live across the street from a mall in Glendale, California. What happened is once this quarantine happened, the um, mall got shut down, which included the mall food court. And without a mall food court, all the rats that ate at the mall flushed into the neighborhood. So Uh we had a day where we were had an exterminator out and they caught like seven rats in our house and we finally got what we thought were rid of all of them and then like a week later we saw one left so the exterminator is like i think what happened was we kind of sealed one into your house when we because you have to patch all the holes when you have rats i actually remember when you were going through all this in in the past yeah because we've had this before because it'll happen when occasionally but all of the food stuffs gets put on our side of the mall so they just bum rushed us, right? So he's like, look, we're going to have to put a trap inside your house. Just, you know, you'll catch the rat and then we'll come and get it. And I'm like, okay, you know, I have a, a daughter who's nine. And I'm like, okay, stay. This is the rat trap. Stay away from them. There's just two. We know it's going to be in this area, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, what is it going to sound like? And I'm like, hopefully it's going to sound like a snap. And then that's it. And she goes, okay. Why? And I'm like, because that means it killed the rat right away and we're great. We're sitting there, we finish dinner, we clean up, turn the lights off, and we're at the kitchen table just kind of like BSing. And all of a sudden we hear this snap. And I'm like, okay, well, that was oh. the rat. And then we hear wapita 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 wapita. Is that the tail? No, it was trying to run away <laughs> with the mousetrap on. Oh. This went on for about five minutes, and I'm like, and we're all looking at each other in horror because it's one thing to set up the traps and leave them under your house. You don't think about it. But like when you hear something die, you're like excruciating. I was so sad. And I was like, I don't have anything like I didn't have anything to to deal with the rat. And I was just about to like find a book. And I was like, maybe if I just hit it really hard with a book. It'll be gone, but eventually it stopped. And then I'm just like, okay, let me just take care of it. And then I cleaned it all up and put it outside and the exterminator came to get it. But I was just I like, thought you were going to have a Frank Underwood moment for yourself. Instead of killing a dog, though, you killed a rat by just like twisting its, breaking its neck, put it out of its No, injury. I couldn't do it. And I was so worried because like my daughter's looking at me like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I don't have, I'm trying to explain it. I'm just like, I don't have anything to really take care of this. Like, Stab it. I didn't know what to do. I'm just stuck. Like as we listen to this rat slowly die. But since then, we've been rat-free, so I think there was just one rat trapped in our house. All right, well, that's that's the silver line, that's I guess, quarant- from all that. That's, that's quite that's the, the adventure. That's the dark it. quarantine story that right. I have for you. Well, I'll uh, bring it up a notch and a little little happier note here. Uh, I'm making actually some good use of my time during the lockdown 2020. I uh, have been getting into uh, organizing my digital life a bit more while I have a little bit extra time and... And I'm at my okay. home computer uh, a lot more, so I am actually can focus on certain things. And I've done one thing finally that I've been wanting to do for a while, and we actually talked about it uh, in the recent past of starting a story idea tracking sheet. And I finally have done it. I, I 
picked an app that I wanted to use. I have this app called Airtable. It's kind of like a glorified spreadsheet database thing, but it has a few features or like category, it has this categorization feature where you can kind of choose how you want to label things and you can do like drop down menus, all this. And which is all great because it kind of, I sit in there in color. So I get to see everything and I can kind of at a glance have these different categories about like, uh, what's, what's the status of it? Is it like, just like a kernel of an idea? Is it, you know, researching, is it in development or is it like, am I actively writing that kind of stuff? And then is it like a feature film idea? Is it a short idea? Like stuff like that. And then the best part about it is then it has like just the main sheet, uh, listed with all then the rows with uh, the columns with its different categories. I then have a view called a Kanban view, which then what is a Kanban? It's, it's a, it's a type of view pretty much what it does. It can then reorganize your list into the categories instead and whatever category you want it to be. So I have categories that are, like I said, uh, the status, like uh, what type of project is this? And like, is this a uh, light bulb or an adapted idea? So there's like say examples of three different categories. I can choose which one of those categories to do it. And then all those sub, um, those choices that I was like kind of mentioning, it can then rearrange into that. So I could say, all right, show me all my status categories. So then it would have it rearranged into active writing, development, uh, um, researching, or just like a kernel of an idea. And then I, it, under each layer, it would have what projects are listed under that. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? Yeah. So it sounds like um, essentially if you're looking at this, you can visualize every place where your story is, like how far along it is. So if you're like, oh, I didn't realize that this story just needs a couple more pushes and all of a sudden it's going to be done with the first draft. Excuse me. This story just needs a couple more pushes and then it'll be done with the first draft. Then you can just be like, okay, that's going to inspire me and I'm just going to like hit that hard for like the next week and then I'll be done with my first draft. And I'll be done with outline or I'll be done with like my revision or whatever. Exactly, exactly. That's and, awesome. And that's why it's nice because I have my own personal categories. And like I said, I've just been kind of mentioning them over and over there, but I can then choose kind of which category I want to see it by. Like I said, so then I can just see like, all right, well, I want to then jump into like a short story. So then I can just do the view on the type of project that it is that I've listed it as. So there'll be like the features, there'll be the short stories. There might be like television drama, web series. So then I can be like, okay, let's work on a short. So then I can see it in that, just that list view of just the short story ideas. And then I can kind of, it helps just see it all in just one place. But again, I can rearrange as I see fit, depending on what I'm looking to do. And this works, does this work with your Scrivener? Because I know you're a big fan of Scrivener and getting that all together. Or is this like a completely separate thing on the side? This is a completely separate thing on the side. And, and this is okay. just basic, uh, pretty basic management of just the ideas. Because b before I had them all in a notes app kind of uh, folder, kind of like in your Evernote, you probably have a folder maybe with just ideas. And then you just have yep. individual notes listing of just like the title of maybe of the idea and then maybe a little bit in the body of kind of extrapolating out more of what your actual thoughts are. And I had that in my Apple notes, but it, it just didn't feel like it was ever really super searchable or easier to see at a glance where this is much easier to see at a glance just because it's a little more, like I said, it looks like in spreadsheet form. So I have like the title of the idea. I have then the kind of summary of what the idea is. And then I get into further categories and add anything in that I want to as I, as I move along and categorize, add in notes, add in links, add in detachments, all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm actually feeling pretty good about it because I'm finally pulling it all together. I, I've already have over like 100 and 
10 ideas like entered in and not all of them are ideas. They're just story ideas. Some of them are like characters. Some of them are character traits. Some of them might be story beats, that kind of stuff. Again, I have a lot of different ways to break it down, which is why this app helps me though, because then I can just add a click of a button, recategorize everything depending on what, what I'm looking for in that moment. Does it make you feel when you have that many things laying around, does it give you a little bit of a sense of ease about it? Like I know there's always a, a, I have a worry often that I'm like, is this the last idea I'll have? And I know it's a, maybe a weird thought to have and be like, well, what if I never come up with anything else? But then if I look at like a, a list or I have a well, like if I, I see a well and it's got like, you know, 80 notes in it and I'm like, oh yeah, like that's 80 things that I can choose from to start a story about. And I, that's a starting point. That's 80 different starting points that I have ready to go. And you're like, you have over 100 different starting points for whatever it is. Even if you're yeah. like combined four of them together, you're like, oh, if I take this cool idea for a character with like this thing and this thing, and I can kind of meld this into one. Is that like give you a sense of ease? Is that why you do it like that? It, it gives me an ease when I see it all. And especially like I have over time gotten better. Like I said, at some point I did start entering them all into like one sort of catch-all place which was my apple notes it, it is nice that like i'm going through this now and i'm seeing all this and it's right. just like wow i really have had a lot of ideas and then it brings back memories of when i did actually think of certain ones sometimes i'm seeing this i'm like when did i think of this other ones i actually still remember coming up with the idea and the general gist of it so it's great to have that refresher but again to what you're saying yes it makes me feel good but i almost i get almost the opposite feeling sometimes where I'm like, I have so many ideas I actually want to pursue that I'm frustrated by the lack of finite time that life gives us. Ooh, I didn't, I did not realize it would bring on an existential crisis. Yes. So, cause I go through that. I'm like, wow, I would love to actually dive into that. I would love to dive into that. I would love to dive into that. But that is then why my year of prioritization comes in and I have to focus in on just a few solo projects and actually take them to the end of the line before I dive into anything else though. So a lot of this I'm not going to be getting into, but it's nice to now have it start set up in a organized way that I my brain works and to able to kind of just see it all at a glance and rearrange things and it's part of the reason is because it's one thing with story ideas that's a little easier to catalog but random things of just like maybe oh this would be just a funny moment in a story so let me just write that down and catalog that as like a story beat and then maybe like a funny moment. So then like if you're ever in a room, maybe in a writer's room or you're trying to come up with ideas with people that you can just kind of go back and look at this and maybe even just as a reference and maybe you'll get jump off it for more ideas or actually it's something you could use. And those are the smaller things that I'm really want to make sure I'm cataloging and tracking because they could get lost in the shuffle because they're a lot more ephemeral than even like a good story idea is. And that's part of the reason of getting kind of in depth the way I'm, I'm doing all this. Yeah, I, the way you put it that it's very ephemeral is is a is a great way that I think of it or a way that I very much think of it, especially when I'm dealing with. Um, any type of jokes or, or doing anything with stand-up, um, one of the things that they say is always be writing stuff down because when you hit those little like nuggets of gold of like that great idea or whatever, there are times that you'll remember them. Like there's some things that are like I'll be thinking about it for like three or four days straight. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to forget it. It doesn't matter if I wrote it down or not. There's other stuff that like I'll look back and I'll be like, wait, who wrote that? Yeah. Like that's pretty funny. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me. Like, nobody's hacking into this and writing jokes but that's, for me. But that's great because sometimes you just need a little pat on the back or a little boost to be like, oh, yeah, that's actually a really great joke. And they're like, oh, that, that was me. All right. I, I, yeah. I, I, I actually maybe that can works. do this. Maybe I can do this. So, I, and, and off of that, actually, I remember you talking about that before where it, it was always about in comedy coming up with ideas. And one of the things that stand up has taught you is that you now can kind of come up with jokes kind of on the fly or kind of in the moment. But having those parts also written down, though, still helps you keep going back to those and having things, if anything, just to jump off of mental nuggets that help you kind of get in the flow of things. If anything, you just talked about it, too, just building out, taking multiple different small bits and building them, maybe putting them together and building out something bigger. Also, I remember this saying that's similar to what you're just talking about, where it's I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it to, down to remember it now. So and that is my life. And that still happens to me where I think of something. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got I should I should, you know, put that down. And then five minutes later, I'm, I forget exactly what I was thinking. It's just less than a couple minutes later. So another thing that I realized in that whole thing is that um, especially with stand up, it's really a numbers game. I had a, a friend who was doing stand up um, for a while talked to me about if you just write if you wrote 10 jokes a day over you know like once you multiply that out over day after day that's like 70 jokes a week that's you know and you go on and on until you get all the math and and just like little ideas that even if like a tenth of them are good you're still like writing three 350 400 great jokes a year right the more you do the the number games the numbers games just comes in your favor at a certain point if you just can't keep at it right but it's just harder when you have longer pieces like yeah you can't write a screenplay every day and let alone 10 screenplays every day but if you could yeah just there wasn't this pesky thing called time (laughs) (laughs) and it's fun to go back though now and see things like wow i'm so that's like actually a great idea which some of them i did totally forget about and now I see it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that actually is very interesting. So anyway, I, it's something that feels good and it's progressing along here. Um, and I feel like I'll be able to finish it up within the next week. Of I have all my ideas randomly or now all in one container and referenceable. And so it's exciting. That's good. That's good. Good use of quarantine. It is a very good use of quarantine. I killed a rat. Well, you know, we all have <laughs> our moments and we're all at different stages in this lockdown right now. I, I cut my own hair because I was going crazy. You're just rolling through it the whole way. You're I know. I haven't shaved my my hair's all over the place. I did you do look like you've came fresh from the barber. You did a very nice job cutting your hair. Yeah, well I did a good on like three sides. The back side uh, I got a little uh, you know, nineties grade school uh, bowl cut going on, but but nobody can see that from here. So I just shared some personal stuff. Other news, uh, I am if you listen to our last episode, uh, I went without a pop screen at the urging of my co-host, Anthony Hudax. Uh, so you can tweet at him if you have any issues with my audio because there was a few pop uh, sounds that were going on. Uh, he thinks yeah. that it's better without it. So you can just talk across the microphone, but I am not as uh, well-trained uh, speaker without a pop screen as he is. So I'm sorry for that, but I'm trying to, I'm going to try it, give it another go and we'll see how it, how it turns out. It's that I'm cheap. I'm going to put it down right there. I'm cheap and I have always done things cheaply. And then when I realize that all I have to do is talk near the microphone and it does everything. And then I, Again, I realized this from stand up that you never 
in stand-up, you never hold the mic like directly in front of your mouth. It's always off to the side a little bit so that you're talking into the mic, but you're not like talking into it. And then I was like, oh, I don't need a pop screen. I can save that $15. Cool you, cool you. (laughs) It was going good. And then I'm just here, all of a sudden I'm hearing these little- I feel very uncool. And I'm like, see, pop screens. Pop screens. There, there's a reason for them. It ain't a gimmick. It ain't a they gimmick. They are. Put it that way. Every professional uses except them. Except for Tony Hudak. Except for Anthony Hudak. Except so. for me. I am like, I am like that hockey player that doesn't use a helmet still. Just rolling out there with pucks he, he coming at me. He glasses too, and he's just like, nope, it's never gonna hit me. Never gonna hit me in the face. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's move on here now, and let's get into uh, what have you watched since we last spoke. So the one that I think I've, I most enjoyed um, that I watched is uh, The Kitchen. And that was with, uh, it was HBO's movie of the week this week. They always do a new one on Saturday evenings. And so it was with uh, Melissa McCarthy and Tiffany Haddish. Oh, that's, very, that's very throwback of you going some uh, appointment viewing on Saturday night for HBO for their Saturday night movie. Are you getting... There are certain things that I really look forward to, and one of them is seeing what the new movie for HBO is on Saturday. And the weird thing is, I could just look it up. Like, I could look up what they're going to be all week or all month, or I think they even release it for most of the year. They know what the scheduled release is. But I don't do that. There's just a little joy to me of, like, Saturday evening when I have nothing to do or I'll get, you know, when we're not in quarantine, I'll get back at like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. I'm like, oh, what's the HBO movie today? And then go and, and see what the new one is. And sometimes it's disappointing. It's all, it's all about the little the little moments in life, right? It's manufacturing your own surprise. So I'll say this. I, I saw this too, likewise, because it popped up, uh, I think, on yeah. Saturday night. I watched it and I was like, all right, we, we decided to check it out. It, Like you said, the, the cast seemed uh, interesting. The uh, cast seemed great. Like just on paper, they were great. And words I think that was paper. one of my biggest problems. With, <laughs> yeah. One of my biggest problems with it was it feel like they really underused that cast. I think Tiffany Haddish is so good. Like I keep forgetting how good she is as a serious actress because she has this ability to have this real tough vulnerability like it's she's just really good at playing somebody who like is very alpha and very upfront and then you can see her internally step back and feel bad about something she's really she just has She's so good at playing subtle. Um, and then Melissa McCarthy, too. Like, I don't know if you ever, if you saw Can You Ever Forgive Me? I haven't seen it yet, but it is on a list. It is very good. She plays such a, like, misanthropic character. But you really start rooting for her because she has this, like, thing about her. That she has this heart that comes through in every performance that she does. And, um... They just seem very, very underused in this in this whole yeah in the whole thing. The um the only one that really got scenes to chew on was Elizabeth Moss, and she did 
you know, but the character was kind of dumb. It was just like she was a woman who got knocked around for a while and then she becomes uh, like the hitman of their squad, but only kind of the hitman of their squad. Yeah, I mean, that, that was all a lot of the parts, uh, interesting parts of the movie was their character arcs that they all went through. Uh, all right, well, uh, yeah, I mean, first off, I, I, I really, I enjoy seeing actors play against type uh so that's part of why i like seeing a lot of when you see comedic actors go into more dramatic roles it's always interesting to see how they how they fare and typically it actually works out pretty well and sometimes you almost see comedic actors play more serious roles than they actually play comedy roles like people who are known as like stand-ups actually for some reason are in more dramas than actual comedies which i always find interesting like but either way, uh, those two, I know they both have done dramas before, uh, but they both have quite the range that go from out, outlandish slapstick comedy all the way to these harder, darker alpha roles, which is which was good. And, and they are, and they're all great, all of them. I mean, Elizabeth Moss is always good in everything she does. I think she gave as much as she could to the character that she had. But again, a lot of this movie for me was just very... It wasn't it wasn't very it was but it was a lot of paint by number type it was a lot of it you could kind of see coming it seemed a lot of uh cliches they played off of uh and my biggest thing my biggest takeaway from it was the pacing was just way off that it it was like hyperized pacing in my opinion where it just shot through beat point beat point beat point uh like it didn't slow down for like everything that was happening to these women and the characters in the in the in the movie just kept happening like something would happen they'd fix it something else kept happening they'd fix it like a bigger problem bigger problem but it was so fast that there was no moments for it to breathe and for the characters to breathe and to kind of get to know them a little bit more in vulnerable moments where they always were had to kind of be on edge in order to get done what they wanted to get done that the, I didn't quite have a connection with them because I didn't have this, this pace, this slower pacing in between the bigger, bigger moments. I understand what you're saying. And just for our audience who hasn't seen this spoiler alert, the movie is about three women whose husbands are part of the Irish mob and they get taken to jail right at the beginning of the movie. And then these th- this is set in like the seventies, New York hell's kitchen area. It's 1979 New York hell's kitchen, which is, you know, the double entendre of the kitchen, the women coming from the kitchen, they were in hell's kitchen. That level of cleverness is pretty standard throughout this whole film. Guys go to prison. They end up uh, running like through a series of like events they start running the irish mob and then in hell's kitchen and then end up you know getting bigger and bigger and bigger until the end i get what you're saying about them blowing through plot points because i really think they did it was there was a lot of stuff going on there were a lot of things that happened in the movie none of it really seemed like it was raising the stakes or moving anything forward Mm -hmm. totally because to me when we got to the end of the movie i thought that should have been the midway point because i was like oh now it's starting to get interesting well that felt like the uh, towards the end when that was like the first time it felt like they were making really hard decisions because up till that point where so because their husbands go to jail they have to then figure out a way to provide for themselves and 
the Irish mob was like, oh, yeah, we'll take care of you. But they weren't. So then they were like, all right, well, we're going to take this into our own hands. And they start taking over jobs. But but the well, they is, start taking over the right, protection but, but the racket is, in, and they do that in House like, Kitchen. Okay, at first, they, they do a few things and you're like, OK, great. They're, they're progressing. I see what they're doing here. But then it seems like they continue to do sort of the same jobs, just like a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. But again, to me, like you just said, the stakes weren't raised enough that I was like, OK, like I, I don't care here. Like unless you're, you're you seem like you're setting up a big showdown, I guess, with like the, the few people left in the Irish mob who are still running half the rackets or something like but it, it all of it seemed like from the beginning, it's kind of set up this idea like, OK, these are women, but these are strong women and they're going to take things over and they're going to run stuff and they're women, but they can do it. And it's like, OK, that's cool. But after that, it seemed like everything was still just hanging off of that idea, in my opinion, where it was just just because they were screwed over by their husbands who were all a bunch of assholes. That's like the only thematic resonance that they kept trying to, to just hang their hat on. And there was never like, and I going off what you said for me, it didn't build off anything. There wasn't any other layers to these characters that then once they were put in these positions that they had other choices. Now they had to make that were really difficult rather than just, you know, being strong armed people who could actually like hustle people or kind of put some fear into people. Like there was no real challenges to them in the way they were kept rising. Yeah, I completely agree. It really felt like the whole thing kept going back to the, ah, hey, look, a woman is doing this thing. Hey, look, it's a woman running a, a racket. Hey, look, it's two women like doing this thing. And there was a great moment that I thought came, it comes at like the middle of the film. I should I thought it should come like pretty early when they have to really deal with the like head mm -hmm. of the Irish mob which, I mean, there's no way to get around. There's just going to be a lot of spoilers in this conversation. They end up having to kill him, and then they need to... They bring in this killer who's played by Dom Hall Gleason, who does yes. a phenomenal job with what Agreed. he has to work with. They bring him in, and there's this great scene, which I think all of them do a great job in this scene, where they have to dissect the body. And uh, Gleason's like trying to explain to them what they have to do to chop the body up. It's in a bathtub and they have to chop it up. And you see like Melissa McCarthy is the one that breaks first and she has to leave. She just can't take what the guy's doing. And you see Tiffany Haddish like holding on, like trying to be like stronger and stronger, and stronger until she finally right. breaks Like Cause he's like dismembering a body. And then you see Gleason be so just like, downtrodden like he's like oh well, i'm this fucking weirdo who's like chopping up a body until like elizabeth moth like kneels down next to him it's like can i do it like and that was a moment for all those actors that i thought stood out and i think everybody was like really trying to chew on a scene that they knew was pivotal and they did they were really alive and making things happen and then we just went back to like oh hey look now elizabeth moss is killing people and that's crazy because she's a girl like I, I, I agree. And that turn just happened so abruptly, it felt like. And then all of a sudden she was just like this cold blooded killer. Yeah. Again, there was nothing to explore that before. You know, I don't think you go from being a, uh, a victim of domestic abuse and then all of a sudden you're just a cold blooded killer because you had this revenge factor. Like it just it just seems so cold. It just seems such a abrupt twist. Well, even if you did have that happen, what I want to see after that is once 
essentially you have her discovering this yeah. power. So sure. we'll say fine. She was beaten up all the time. She's never going to be a victim again. Now she's taken out all her rage on anybody close to her. I want to see how does that affect Melissa Agreed. McCarthy and Tiffany Haddish? Like when when does she start getting out of control that they're like, holy fuck, she's a monster. Like, are we really okay? Yeah, they just make offhanded comments about it, and that's, like, all there is to it is just some jokey offhanded comments in random scenes when she's not around. And they give her the most unsatisfying death, and they do it to serve a plot point that I just thought was so arbitrary. I, I agree. And then it ends with Melissa McCarthy essentially forgiving Tiffany Haddish for double crossing her. And I was like, now I want to know how you guys have a relationship after this. Like, but they walk away that they're like making this thing of like women are stronger together and we shouldn't be tearing each other down. It's like, yeah, except for the fact that you almost got her killed. Now I want to know how you two work together. How do you ease that tension of someone who put a gun in your face and you were able to work it out so that you're both on the same level again. You realize you need each other, but now you got that animosity. Like, it was all queued up to where that's a halfway point. Now I want to see them fight it out to see who's, like, if anybody wants to be king. It was a wild twist there, too. But but just how, abru- again, it was so abrupt because they, they lured Melissa McCarthy in to kill her. And then... Just because she had backup, all of a sudden they became friends. It was just so bizarre. It was just like, I I was already lost about halfway through the movie. My wife and I were watching. We both looked at each other like, do you even care what's going on? I was like, no. But we finished it. And it was just like, I I don't know. It was just, it was frustrating. Uh, Because there there could have been a lot more there. Uh, it, It was one of those stories I was hoping where it feels like it could be cliched because it was going down a very well worn road of, you know, indie mobster type or people taking over uh, a scene that they're a fish out of water. But then they, they didn't. They, they followed a very paint-by-numbers, you know, you kind of could forecast what was going to happen a lot of the times. And never at any point really, though, was there something that they did different that was like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, so that was frustrating because you said the talent that they had on screen, uh, the type of material could have been interesting if they really kind of worked it more. And it, it was frustrating that it, it wasn't. it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, and I do have to say, it the movie looked beautiful. Like the 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 way they did New York, like they it's really cool. It's a I know like a lot of people would want to make a, a reference to Joker, but Todd Phillips Joker is essentially takes place in the same time period in the same place in New York as this movie. And Joker's so much grittier and darker and uh, they were able to do with Kitchen a way to make it look just as gritty, just as grimy, but it had a more slick feeling to it. It was a little more stylized in a clean... In it clean didn't feel as much anarchy as that. It felt like like being in control. And, I mean, obviously that's, you know, boosting the movie along because you're about people gaining control as Todd Phillips' movie is about people losing control, but... Um, but I do have to shout out to that because I was like, wow, this movie looks great. All the costuming was amazing. I mean, and I'm not even a fan of like 70s look and it was it was cool looking. But that, that was the thing. And like it started off, you know, they did kind of give a, a, a tone and essence of like a style that they wanted to portray. But then they, they didn't use that to full effect uh, because of other reasons. 
So yeah. it was unfortunate, but uh, you know, it's it's good to watch movies that don't turn out great either, just to kind of see where they went wrong and, and ways that they could get improved. So this week, what I watched was I watched actually a, a bunch of things, but the one I wanted to talk about uh, was for all mankind. Uh, this is the space show on the Apple TV Plus uh, streaming service. So I my second Apple TV Plus show I watched. This one was actually really good. Good to hear. Good to hear. So I was happy about that and. Honestly, though, I was uh, very. What's sorry? What's this one about? This is the one about the the astronauts that are the women astronauts in in Florida or Cape Canaveral. Where is this? No. So this pretty much is the basic premise: is what if the Russians beat America to the moon? What would have happened? So oh, okay. that's part of the. That's what I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit with this: is what is your take on revisionist? storytelling so this movie starts off with pretty much the inciting incident is just everybody's uh watching tvs uh, all around america and you see a bunch of different scenes and this is in 1969 you know they're watching it and all of a sudden somebody lands on the moon and then somebody steps out and it ends up being a cosmonaut and then it has some you know it speaks in russian you know communist is the best that kind of stuff and so then it sets off the wheels in motion of like how did this happen? Like, what are we doing wrong? How did we not see this? And so there's like, they play it on a good couple levels. Uh, the the realism in the show is fantastic. Like they, they really do a fantastic job with set dressing, the production value. And the storytelling is really good too with the, they're using a lot of real people. There's some fictional characters that they drop in uh, even within like say certain Apollo missions, even in the past, just because then these are some of your protagonists that you're following around. Uh, but it allows them a little bit more creative freedom to to do the story that they want to do, which is that all that's fine because they do a really good job at blending historical facts with uh, the fiction that they kind of are then going to veer off of. And it pretty much starts from the beginning. Like after that, there's a few more historical things that they talk about, but then they pretty much you see the branch off happen pretty quickly of like their own fictionalized version of what's happening. I actually found this all very compelling uh going into it though i was very skeptical because i wasn't sure how i felt about revisionist history because i'm like yeah but it did happen in real life like this actually did happen and we know how that turned out so like why would i want to watch something about a what if and so that was what i went into it uh so and emily went to watch she likes space show so i was like i'll give it a chance and i ended up watching the whole series have you watched any kind of uh stories like this or what's your thoughts on like the big what if type of rewriting history i don't have anything necessarily against the whole like what if rewriting history there's Something that I think is interesting in the thought experiment, I remember reading The Man in the High Castle because I went through a whole Philip K. Dick phase and I was just like reading. That was the other one came to mind. But I've never seen the show and I thought that was an interesting premise when I was reading it. What did you think about the book? Did you finish it? Yeah, yeah, finished it. I mean, the book is is fairly small. It's only, I mean, I think it's only like 170 pages, oh, wow. maybe 220 pages. Like it's a very, okay. it's a very quick read. And it was the Philip K. Dick when he was on amphetamines and just like pumping out novels. So they're, you know, as short as his intention span and equally as, you know, brilliant and crazy. So I never like thought that there was anything wrong with that. The thing that I would always wonder about people exploring. Oh, and another one I loved is um, The Watchmen. Like, and that's yes. essentially revisionist history of, you know, how did these 
great big events play out if you introduce the idea of superheroes into them movie like i i was only very vaguely familiar with the comic book and i found it all very fascinating like we talked about this briefly before that i really enjoyed the movie but i also like i enjoyed the story and how they did this whole nixon still being president stuff and it was fascinating to me when i saw that in my past i did like those stories so it was i don't know exactly where i became a little bit more um cold to the idea i think the only thing i would like to see if anybody's gonna do another revisionist thing the thing that i would like to see focused on in one that i think would be the next level or the interesting would be i would want to see what are the events that are inevitable that happen no matter what like if you do a revisionist history and say that you know hitler wins world war ii I want to know the inevitable thing is somebody going to space so then I want to see what that event looks like in that thing. Or I want to see if there's other events that are so shifting that they would happen in any timeline. Like when you look at, you know, like like would 9-11 happen in that timeline and what does that look like? And that would be the stuff that I would want to see how they're differently. And I think what happens with a lot of revisionist history is that you say okay well we're going to change this one event and then look at how the world then would change through everybody else's eyes because all these other things get undone it's the whole back to the future thing all those other memories fade as you get further from the event and then the world looks completely different i would wonder how much it would matter or if that would be such an odd treatise to have anything in that genre because if you're like well it doesn't matter you know who wins or who loses the war everything goes on the same then you really have to look at things in a realm of fate which is not something that you're going to tend to look at in a historical context so one of the things they did do in this first season is after they changed history and then they're going on this new path and we're going down it they still had sort of big moments happen where like a big disaster would happen I don't think they're going to do things that are the same. So it won't be like 9-11 happened, but like something big still happens in this new alternate timeline. So there is still like rallying around or condemnation because this big event happens. So like in the story, there is like a big explosion that happens that, you know, almost cripples the program type of thing. Like that still happens. So it's like similar, right. like they're evoking other things that are going to ha- that happen in like the space program. Say like, remember the Challenger uh, explosion. So I think they're evoking sort of similar ideas in this new alternate history, alternate timeline that they're doing. So they do, I feel like, kind of tackle that a little bit of what you're talking about. Part of it for me was originally before watching this was like, but you're, it's almost weird to say, but it's like you're constructing something that just can't or won't happen, but that's what fiction is. So it's weird to say that, but it's just because it's based off historical fact and you're changing that and you're still using some real people that it just, I was like, it just seems weird to me. Long story short of what I'm getting to is after I watched this, what I started to realize more of what, what does it mean to be a revisionist history uh, or, you know, historical fiction is that you're pretty much just saying, I wanted to see a different type of space show, but based in reality. So instead of 
just kind of creating a one in the future. Let's start back in present time or even the past. And now you're going to see what it would actually be like to build out a space program in the vision that like this guy likes to make space shows. But you're seeing it from the ground up from the beginning in reality rather than just starting in the near future. Oh, yeah, we're building up our space program so that like we become Star Trek type uh, space federation in the far distant future. So that's actually what's becoming more interesting to me is to actually see because his plan is like this has already kind of been laid out by uh ron moore is the guy who's uh creating this he did battlestar galactica and used to be a head writer on star trek uh in the 90s he he's laid out he has about seven seasons of this show ready to go uh and it's going to start in the past around the apollo era it's going to get into the present day uh 80s 90s the 2000s and then it's actually going to go into the future into the 50s 60s 70s and maybe even beyond i don't I don't know how far into the future so it's actually going to be this whole trajectory of the like initial base building of a space program starting at apollo we're talking about acceleration like we never stopped going to the moon more or less to me it's now just this way of him building a new world based in reality is kind of where i'm seeing it at that makes sense and i guess in a certain way all science fiction is revisionist history Anyway, so I, I, I don't know why I got this, but I actually think that it's an interesting way to jump into stories while having some basis and some, uh, I guess, built in emotion already to what it is. And it's interesting how they use that to play with your how you feel about what you're watching on screen. So it, it was good, though. I, I definitely recommend people to watch it. It was really, really good. Okay, I'll definitely check it out. I'm, I'm a little slow to adopt on the whole Apple side of things, but, you know, okay. All right, all right. So far, one really good show, one other okay show, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep being our resident reviewer of Apple Plus shows. Uh, so then let's get on to our current event topic. Uh, so I just wanted to bring this up. There's a lot of people have been talking about it. So Quibi launched, and I just wanted to get your take on this because it's a bit of a yeah. different it's – a, it's a bit of a different business model, uh, a bit different concept with how they're building out a streaming service versus almost every other – big conglomerate that's building out a streaming service which is doing just a very traditional kind of tv on demand more or less where this one they are making uh small short shows so anything 10 minutes or less is their tagline quibi stands for quick bites so that's just the basic premise is that you can watch all this stuff they're doing both scripted and unscripted content and i think they're also doing some daily news i don't know too much about it but they're also doing that and i haven't seen it uh, but I think same thing. It's supposed to be kind of like in and out, you know, hourly or by daily updates, that kind of thing. So I haven't actually watched anything. I watched a review on Deadline about it. I sent you that. You said you actually uh, have been watching some Quibi shows. You were, you were curious about it and you actually have some other background in it that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, you had sent me the article. It was interesting that you wanted to do Quibi. I watched the uh, Deadline Hollywood review and I kind of was a little bit of uh, bated breath because I had worked on uh, Chrissy's Court, which debuted, was one of the debut shows. This is Chrissy Teigen's People's Court-esque show? Yeah, it's basically Judge Judy, you know, People's Court, only with Chrissy Teigen. And her mom. And her mom. And John Legend makes an appearance. And she is very good in this very short format. Like, she is, she's very charming. She's able to be very funny in this, you know, very quick amount of time. And I had done, I had helped them in their casting with editing. So I had picked up Quibi because I wanted to reach out to the people and, you know, say that I had really enjoyed the show. 
I think in general, like backing up to the 50,000 foot view, I think Quibi's in an interesting spot because I know with YouTube, they don't monetize content as much under 10 minutes because YouTube had a whole thing where they were trying to get more and more people to spend more and more minutes on there. So they definitely emphasize videos over 10 minutes. So Quibi coming in and being 10 minutes or less is not an arbitrary number. And I think with it looking as slick as it does, it really does seem to serve a market that YouTube has definitely run away from. And I think that's going to be very interesting going forward. Yeah, because I think YouTube has, they've even officially announced they were pulling back on their scripted content and they were re-looking at their whole scripted content plan. Uh, I don't even know if Red, YouTube Red, well, it's not even called YouTube Red. I think it's called like YouTube Watch or something now. I can't even remember what their paid plan is. Yeah, they definitely rebranded it. Yeah, after the, the but they had the one successful show, the, the Karate Kid reboot or the continuation rather not a reboot yeah and i i think they, they tried a few shows actually my wife worked on one of the shows uh solving crimes with ryan hansen and it, it was you know they they put a lot of money into those shows but again one of my things i think was wrong with youtube was they were trying to do too much of a traditional television show format where they should have focused on what their strengths were and that was people watching smaller quicker uh, clips there, you know, people will come in, they want to watch a whole couple different clips that they have some downtime or watch them in the background. And I don't think they utilized or focused on what their actual core audience was and what they wanted to watch. They could, everybody can get all that content that they made at other places. They should have found a way to make this new scripted content or even unscripted stuff fit more into what their audience model was. And I don't think they did that and did that well. I think the thing was they didn't have as many high like when you think about when Netflix launched its, you know, content, they dropped a ton of money on a really great prestigious show in House of Cards. It was already proven across the pond, so it wasn't like you were developing it from scratch. They paid a lot of money to David Fincher, they paid a lot of money to get Kevin Spacey. They gave, they threw a ton of money at it and they were like, we're going to make something that is going to get people talking about what we make. And I think the thing that happened with YouTube Red was that that show was the Karate Kid, you know, continuation became that heart tugging favorite. But YouTube Red had been going on for like two or three years at that point. Yeah. Cause I think they do. I think it's ad free also. Like that's part of it, regardless of what videos you watch. I think if you're part of their paying, you also get ad free for any of the videos that are on YouTube. Uh, so I think there was other components to it than, than just the new scripted content, but that was like the main, uh, that was the main jewel of their, their paid uh, subscription. So I, and I agree with you. I think that they didn't have uh, like a calling card. And that was part of Netflix's genius was out of the gate. They decided let's dump a ton of money in it, get some high end creators and, and, you know, proven talent attached to this and, and give them as much money as they're asking for that where nobody else would do it. And I think that all that, you know, it sounded like a lot of money, but part of it, you're almost just paying for free press then because that's all people were talking about. Like it was a huge deal when it happened. Right. And everybody wanted to see if it would live up to it. Exactly. Exactly. And so then YouTube didn't have it. It's not that everybody needs that necessarily out of the gate, but they didn't have anything that was kind of like their main 
you know, jewel of what they were doing. Like, you know, again, these are a little bit older times, but even like AMC networks, when they got into scripted, they, they had Mad Men, uh, which was like, people knew where that show was. And at least it would, they at least had one show to bring people in. And then you try to have a halo effect and, and it rub off onto other parts of your service where, Again, YouTube didn't have much of that. And, and you know, honestly, Quibi doesn't necessarily have that outside of maybe the Christy Teigen thing might be one of their top shows that, that come out of it. They could, but part of the things they have so much talent on so many shows because they've, they've paid for so many A-listers and, and big behind-the-scenes people to make their shows. It's almost a glut of too much of that where there's no balance of, like, here's a few shows with some big talent that you know with some interesting content or then here's some unknown stuff that maybe you should check out because you're already here that kind of thing so yeah that is something that actually is really kind of unfortunate because to take a step back and say that you know anytime anybody rolls something out or any time somebody makes something creative in this it is so much easier to point out what went wrong than to sit there and look at a blank page or you know look at a blank marketing strategy and be like, well, this is what we're going to do and this is how it's going to work and it's going to be successful. Like it's much easier to poke at things after they're done and say like, well, this isn't perfect. This isn't perfect. And that's what makes being a critic so easy um, because it's very easy to have an opinion on something. So for everything I'm, I'd say, I like to take with a grain of salt of being like, yeah, but you know, props to everybody who is doing anything uh, for Quibi definitely the reality works a lot better I think it is a lot easier to enjoy in that uh, smaller format because on your phone is inherently distracting and that's the type of thing where reality works a little bit better um, because you're either out where you can kind of have a little more noise because reality is very much in your face and it goes and I think that's why Chrissy's court works so well She's funny. She's charming. The guests are, are great. They did a wonderful job casting. Everybody in the casting department was amazing. That that really um, right helped. That. <laughs> but one thing I do want to say, though, the one that I tried to watch, I, I did a couple of the scripted ones. And the one I watched was um, Most Dangerous Game with Christoph Waltz and Liam Hemsworth. That one does look like the most interesting just because I love Christoph Waltz. Right. And that was the one that I think was going to be their flagship. That or Survive with uh, Sophie Turner and that's directed by um, everybody's name's going away. doesn't matter. Um, so Survive was, was the other big one. Um, so I watched both of those and both of them ran into the same problem. First of all, with The Most Dangerous Game, you start the story with the premise like it, it basically lays out that Christoph wants wants Liam Hemsworth to be hunted and then they can't even help themselves they go back to a few weeks earlier yeah. in the next episode so then we spend two episodes setting up where we were in then get back into the thing that's a discussion for another day but man I don't like flashbacks. They're so frustrating to me. And they're even worse when you do it after you jump into the show and then they decide to go back because they have to fill in some some story. I actually got very mad at that show because the second episode was literally everything they talked about in the first episode only dramatized. And when you talk about something that's only eight minutes long, if I feel like we're rehashing already... After only watching eight minutes, I'm like, this is really slow. So, but what they did, what Quibi does is they drop four episodes of a show 
and then it's one each day thereafter. And I think the biggest thing is really going to be, are people going to stick around for that? Well, I find that interesting with the day after, like they release the few in the beginning and then they're just going to release a new one every day until the series is exhausted. I do find that interesting uh, right. because like you're burning through content that way. So my other, my question off this again, I haven't done enough digging into it is like, do they have a ton of episodes per show? Like, are we talking like, 15 to 30 episodes or something or do we just have 10 and they're just like almost like weekly shows i think they're all 10 to 15 except for like their news stuff and some of them may be longer but so there's so each each show might last about a, a half a month maybe a month at best but that, that's still a lot of content but again because it's broken down in 10 minute chunks you can see how they're almost able to spread it out more uh, or make feel like they're making more we're not talking like you know, 30 straight days of 30 minute episodes here. But off of that idea of like, they're going to drop them and then drop a new one every single day. I I appreciate though, what they're doing with that amongst the other things that they're trying, going back a little bit to what you're talking about of like, it's easy to criticize, especially something new that comes out. All the things that they're trying, I do appreciate. And I, I, I honestly think that it's going to be successful or at least it's going to be around for a while. Like, I think that they're going to try a lot of things. I appreciate that they're trying a lot of different things and new types of things. Like one of them was how, like if you turn your phone, depending on, doesn't matter what orientation the, the screen will react to that and it won't change your perspective. It'll just change what you're actually able to see on camera or on the screen. That was really cool. I did that a couple of times and there was a couple of times actually in both survive and in uh, the most dangerous game where I actually rewound it to watch how they shot it in um, right. both portrait and landscape because that's something that I think is going to be very interesting because you I would love to talk to a cinematographer who has to shoot like that because it's yeah. very interesting how they have to frame that in two different ways and still make it compelling. And there was a couple shots that I was like, ooh, what does this look like in portrait? Or ooh, what does this look like in landscape? So that is a cool feature. I mean, just from a technical point of view, I'd love to dig down on that. For sure. And I, you know, I, I think it's cool. You know, I, I've heard some people say they find it disorienting or they think it's gimmicky and it kind of is gimmicky to a degree, but it also in the way we use our phones now, not everybody wants to turn into landscape to have to watch something. So I also think that it's kind of smart that they give you the option to how you want to watch it, depending again, because they want you to do it kind of quickly and you don't want to have to think necessarily about how you're going to sit and watch this show. You want to be able to just turn it on and go. If you think to turn it around onto landscape, great. If not, you can just watch it the way it is in portrait. So I think that's actually pretty smart. And they have a, a couple other things like that, uh, which are these different technological ways and also that might affect how the story is kind of told. I think it's all good. I, I think from the reviews that there were that we watched on Deadline, they talked about they think the scripted stuff isn't great. Uh, it's kind of rehashing stuff that has already been out there. And and it's also hard to do the way they're doing. It just doesn't seem to be compelling enough. But then they say the, the unscripted stuff really does fit this model a lot better. So what I think is going to happen is they're going to keep trying out these different things. They probably have a couple other ideas in the hopper that they're going to roll out over time over the next year. And I think they're going to just take in a lot of the data that they're going to get. And I think they're going to revisit of like what type of content they show, they, they create, what kind of content, how they shoot this content. I think they're just going to continually rework this and reiterate it until they get to something that works the best and what the audience is reacting to the most. 
Um, it's hard to say they are coming out at a bad time for their launch with all this, you know, stay at home stuff where this is a on the go mobile thing. I, I, that's one part of myself that I actually think could hurt them is the fact that they're not also open up to having like a, a TV app or something like that. And they might in the future. And I know you got to, you know, focus in on certain aspects. So I, I, I get that. I'm not killing them on it. But I do think it's limiting actually them and the scope in which they can kind of show their service off of. I honestly think they're going to be okay. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of talent. It's going to find its way. It, 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 I think it has a lot of runway, I believe. Uh, and I think it, it'll be able to work itself out. I 100% agree. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think one thing that Quibi definitely did is I think they're going to be another player for a little bit. And I think what will be interesting to have happen is... As filmmakers learn to play in this genre better, I think they're going to end up with a lot better content. And the one thing that's actually a real standout that is an unscripted show, but it's more of a documentary, it's a docu-follow series, is called Run This Town. And it's about a small, uh, like a small city mayor in Massachusetts. And that was by far... I mean, besides Chrissy's Court, which is just, you know, I wish it could get an Emmy right now. It's that I know, good. I, I think they should really, like, editorial, like, it is Emmy-worthy, like, five times over. So every episode is is under that 10-minute mark. Every episode is, like, a great chunk of this super compelling documentary narrative and they put it together so well that that's the one that I think people are going to start emulating. And I think the rest of them, I'm probably going to wait until they're all done and then binge them, which is my big question is once we get through this initial glut of content, what happens? Like, are they still going to be pumping a ton of money into it? $7.99 for subscription without commercials is steep yeah and i was just going to bring up the the pricing is that the pricing is the one honestly is to me the biggest factor i would criticize that i just don't know how that's going to work out with all the other streaming services that you're paying for i mean disney is cheaper than that like disney with all of the content and the the production value content i mean like right talk about avengers pixar star wars in addition to the whole vault and in addition to what they are even though it's a much slower pace their own original content that they're bringing there they're bringing a bunch of like movies that were originally supposed to go to the theater they're coming straight to vod now obviously because circumstance and also this is part of a longer term strategy for disney that to me is one of the harder selling points. And they, they also have a smaller tier with ads, but it's only $2 cheaper. And it's like that again, I don't understand your pricing scheme of that. That to me is the biggest hurdle of all for Quibi. You either should have ads supported for free or you then do a a paid model for that. That to me is the only way this type of content will kind of work. I would a hundred percent agree with you. You have to look at Disney and be like, they're the ones that are setting the price now. I, I think that's why Apple had to come in at $5 because they had like no content practically. And then they also gave it away for a year for people who are buying new devices because they had to build up. They're still working on building up their right. library and Disney's only a dollar more than them. Like it, it is. It, they reset the whole market pretty much, was which was pretty amazing. Which, I mean, only the mouse can do. It is giant giant i mean well and i want to give a shout out to bob Iger for like the methodical planning over a decade and a half of uh, securing all these high end properties 
and finding a way to make them play further down the line. I don't think necessarily he had streaming in mind when he did this, but he knew there were bigger ways to bring these all, all of them together. And it was like strategically one of the best business moves like I've ever seen in entertainment. Yeah, no, it was, it was phenomenal. And I think you're a hundred percent right with that. 7.99 to get no commercials is super steep, even though they're giving away a 90 day free trial now. is very steep and then $4.99 to pay and still see ads is crazy at a time like this. $4.99 on your phone with ads is a big ask of people and $7.99 without is, I don't know what I'll do. I'll probably get, I do have the alarm set in my phone at day 85 and then again at day 88. Maybe get rid of it. So we'll wait and see. I, I'm, I'm hopeful for it. I, I do appreciate the trying different things out, but that, pri- that price is going to be difficult. So we will see in 90 days. We'll revisit this topic. All right. So we're moving on to our main topic of the day here. And I'm going to let Tony kind of set this up because he brought this up. And it, it comes out of we both watched The Tiger King is, since our last episode. And we both had some feelings on it. It's, it's very interesting. It's pretty wild. If you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. There could be some spoiler talking here. <laughs> It's just this really bizarre show, uh, a documentary that's broken into seven parts on Netflix about this guy, Joe Exotic, who raises these big cats and tigers and lions in his park in Oklahoma. And then there's this whole mini world of intertwined players of animal activists, rights activists, and these other big cat performers and and, uh, zoos and stuff like that. It's, It's all this interloping and murder and murder for hire and uh, other crazy things that happen. So I'll let you then take it from there and just kind of open up what you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I was watching it this week as I think everybody who's stuck home with Netflix is. And what got me about it was how bizarre, like you said, this it starts with what seems like an animal rights documentary about this extravagant guy who is like raising cats and then by the end of it it really does become like a murder for hire a cold case like situation there's con men that come you know there's gunplay there's yeah there's con men there's a reality show that tries to get produced that maybe or maybe not like burned down half the place there's strip club owners that are has the cia has them wearing wires going into these these meetings that they're in it's nuts you get into animal trafficking it is completely bizarre and uh, you have you have guys that are have harems and like yeah <laughs> but the thing that struck me as i'm watching this is i'm believing all this stuff as it happens and as i'm watching it um, and a lot of times I'm believing it because it, you know, I it's a documentary. Like I know that this happened. I had, I listened to a podcast about this whole thing first. It's I think it was called Over My Dead Body. Did you watch it before you watched the show? You listened to this podcast? Yeah, I listened to the podcast, and then when I saw that it was Joe Exotic, I was like, oh my gosh, I got to see who all these people are because you hear about them in this, and I'm like, this is nuts. But you believe all this stuff because it's a documentary. It's all presented as true. And it got me thinking about in creating something out of nothing, how do you make it sound true? And there's 
been a lot of times that I've watched things or will talk about things and it'll be like, well, that ending was just unbelievable. Or I just like that didn't work for me. None of it. Like I couldn't even believe any of this was happening. Whereas if you were to put this story down, even in a screenplay, I kind of would still believe it. Like it has a resonance of truth to it. And I would just wanted to talk about um, the ideas of what it means to be like, how do you, why does something sound true versus why does something sound not true? And what is the pitfalls of, as you're telling a story or as you're creating something to make it sound not true. Okay. So like when you're, you're, so it's small topic. Oh, very tiny topic. (laughs) I mean, like this is a very narrow road we're going down here in this conversation. So I hope you, you know, just settle in just, it'll be a nice, easy ride. We are, we won't be veering off track here. There is no, you know, no forks in the road. So don't worry, folks, we are good to go. This is just tiny, tiny topic. All right. So I I just want to kind of go back over a little bit. So you're just saying you're just thinking about this from this show. And this isn't necessarily like we don't have to dive into the show too much. But when you're trying to even just come up with your own ideas and you're creating your own story, your own fictitious story, just like Mm -hmm. is there moments where you're almost going overboard with the story you're telling because everybody's just going to watch like I don't this is I don't understand. This. This is just so crazy. I can't even like enjoy this story and kind of track it. Is that part of like what you're saying? Is that like you really just think of some fantastical thing and like people just won't really connect with it? Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah, I think there's what I'm trying to get at is that I think there is a way that stories are told that you inherently believe it. Like, for example, Star Wars, from the minute I like you're in the world Everything is believable through that last frame of celluloid, like from the thing yeah. of, you know, the dusty farmer kid who like has to go and has a magic power and fights the Galactic Empire. And then at the end blows up a Death Star with one shot like and then it has the award ceremony, you know, being commended for saving the galaxy. Right. It, there's. There's a believability all along the way there. And while there's some times that you're like, whoa, that's crazy. There's nothing that becomes so unbelievable that you don't enjoy that story. It all has a truth to it. I've seen that work really well in crazy things. I've also seen it fall apart in like some of the like smallest things. Like, All right. Well, I was going to say does this have to do with the starting point of like creating the rules of the world that you're watching? I think that does have a part of it is Um, because like you, you, when you started off and like people are starting to take in the information from the the very first frame of the film, they're starting to take in information and your job as a writer and as a filmmaker, you have to start presenting certain facts about what world we're inhibiting right now, be it even like the real world present day stuff or up in space in this far off galaxy each world has certain rules that you're going to play by. Even if it's a real world, like the mob movie we watched, there's still certain rules within it that aren't completely correlate to like what you rules you and me are living by right now as we talk on this podcast, but they're closer to that than the ones up in star Wars up in a galaxy far away. But anyway, so you're establishing these rules. Now, do you think that it's, are we talking about like you establish rules, but then at a certain point you do something that kind of breaks those rules and that's when people get pulled out of it. Or 
Is it even that people, when you establish certain rules, they're almost just not on board with these rules to begin with? Well, I think there's going to be a difference. If you establish a rule and people aren't on board with it, like, for example, if you were to do Return of the Jedi or you're to do, um, you know, Empire Strikes Back and people are not on board with the fact that there is a force and the force emanates from like this mystic group of people. Well, by the time you have the reveal that Darth Vader is Luke's father, like those people aren't even watching the film anymore because they just think it's dumb that people have magic, let alone that the rule sets up that all of this magic is coming from magical twins from the guy that has been set up to like a movie previous to be the most badass of badasses right. who has this power that the guy who's able to go is his son. Like you're like, Oh, that all tracks. But if you were off board with that right. rule from the beginning, then yeah, that's not going to work. But what I'm saying is if you set that rule, then you have to honor it throughout the whole time. Absolutely. And I think once, I think that's a good point. I think once you start, once you make a rule and then you break it, that's where it becomes uh, a real detriment to anything that you're doing because you can't build anything on a broken rule because it, it it's like when you're playing a like a song like if you have a melody going and then you break that melody people turn and they look like why did this happen and if it isn't for a good reason then like you've just lost everybody because then we're like oh there was no reason for that to have happened i want to jump on that real quick and an example that go for it is sticking with the star wars stories and spoiler alerts if you haven't seen star wars go watch them the first trilogy happens four five and six and they're just like you said we're talking about two this mythical force that doesn't have it's not completely defined in the movie in the first original three but that's what is the controlling force quote unquote no pun intended behind like everything that's going on and, and but more or less it, it's like this good versus evil kind of layer that you it's this thing you can't see and it's part of being an innate thing it's just that what they're pretty much saying is that these certain people actually have can almost harness this good versus evil idea and feeling and actually have a power with it that you know correlates to a physicality in, in this world what i then lost me was in then the new three one two and three when they said it's just like this little robot mitochondria i forget if it's a little minuscule microscopic robots or bacteria or something in the blood that gives them this. And then like they can test it and see how much mitochondria you have. And if you have the force that to me, that lost me to me, that it was like breaking a rule. And like there was became an unbelievable thing to me. That was just like, that's just dumb. I just thought it was dumb. That doesn't seem true to the, you know, the, the myth of what we're talking about here in this whole big Y universe that you created. I thought it was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen happen. That reminded me of that yeah. moment when I, when I saw that, when he took his blood test and, and found out, Oh yeah, he had to put it in a machine and could actually calculate it. I was just like, that is dumb. That is a rule breaker. That is dumb. And I think that could be something that even could point to maybe over defining a rule that you have in your world could be to its detriment. Like if you, I agree with you. Like the myth of it almost was more enticing than actually having all this stuff explained out and told to me. Yeah, no, I, I that I completely agree with, and and maybe that is just a little bit of a, a flavor on it. Is sometimes, and granted, there it takes a lot of self awareness to know that what 
everybody's wondering like what the force is and everybody's wondering like what it was but it's kind of like the same thing in like the mystery of you know who killed laura palmer in the twin peaks series or at the end of any mystery like if you have to overly define what happened then that mystery kind of loses its luster and then it's sort of like not as fun because if you can measure what the force is by some sort of thing then it stands to reason that you could then manufacture it somehow it's kind of like once you give it a name you can start to figure out how it works and if you could do that then it starts to become this weird incongruent thing of like if they could test for the force then why are they just going around testing kids like why like why isn't the galactic empire just going around grabbing these kids especially if they have twins out there that the most powerful second most powerful person in the entire empire is looking for why aren't they just out testing kids and that was one of my biggest problems with the the new you know the one two three trilogy was that it it just then like over explained everything that was part of this like half mythy mythos of the original trilogy and that was part of what i think everything fell down was for most people just because then you're just straight up explaining things and now you're you're retconning in a prequel you know and it would have been interesting to see if like you made those movies first and you set that all up to begin with and then you did them like that's always an interesting thing with like prequels and sequels and stuff like that how these where these stories fall in line with what information you know and like how you interpret it because of the information that you know like but i think it would have broken the it would have been a bad rule and i think there there is something that we could talk about good rules versus bad rules but i think that would have been a bad rule and the bad rule is because what it breaks then is the logic of what somebody would do in well, under that rule and I guess one of the ones that comes to my mind of like over explaining and then breaking those rules now you see me about the the, the magicians it was Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Woody Harrelson yes yes so anyway they're these the four horsemen are the these magicians and they get together they're brought together by this mysterious force and blah 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 and they do they're robbing from the rich giving to the poor type of thing and then they're being hunted by this FBI agent that's Mark Ruffalo, and then it gets to the end of the movie. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it. And it turns out that Mark Ruffalo, this FBI agent, was actually the one that was getting them together the whole time. That breaks everything that happened in the entire movie, and it breaks all manner of logic, because we're going through a world where we have to believe that magic isn't real for these people to be master magicians. Then we also have to believe that Mark Ruffalo, trained in the FBI, rose through the ranks, studied magic because his father was wrongfully killed or disgraced or whatever, then became such a high FBI agent that he was able to get assigned to this case that he set up and then chase these people and pretend to want to catch them in order to just, you know, indoctrinate them into a magical society. It's like you've just invalidated your entire movie. There was no conflict the entire time. I think that's a great point of when your your main protagonists always have to be able to actually achieve their goal by the end of the story. Like, not that they actually will, but they have to actually be able to do it 
even if like they fail in what they do. But in that scenario, what you're talking about, what their goals were, were then irrelevant for the main protagonists because of this big shadow thing that was the big reveal at the end. And that's what happens a lot with those kind of movies with these big plot twists. They get so convoluted around these, these twists that that's kind of where they start the movie off at, but then they have to do all this twisting and turning to get it into that. And then they have to explain it all because it gets so complicated because they're trying to be clever. Then there is no real truth. I think though is what you're saying at the underneath it, that all that is just fakes. And then you're like, but then what did I just watch for two hours? If that all meant nothing. Part of that is then also like character motivations. Uh, I think we both touched on that with the kitchen. Uh, You were bringing up that earlier about the the twist Mm -hmm. at the end where it seemed to kind of undercut everything that had happened. Yeah, I think there was there was actually two twists that I think undercut everything. There was the Melissa McCarthy, Tiffany Haddish twist, which was the end of the movie, where Melissa McCarthy, I guess the idea is that she was going to be merciful and usher in a new way. So. But And we already talked about that, but then what was the other piece of it that you thought was like undercutting what in a, a character's motivation? Yeah, the other one was Common plays an FBI agent, and then in the almost end of the movie, you have this twist that Common was actually working with Tiffany Haddish the whole time. It doesn't make any sense. Like it completely undercuts her as a character because instead of her having instead of her having her own uh validation and like strength, gravitas, like her own like power, it was kind of been like, "Oh, well, I had this guy on the inside who was like helping me out." And then they kind of throw in this weird thing that Tiffany Haddish set up the three guys to be pinched in the beginning and go to jail, which I guess only makes sense when you look back and realize, why would the FBI be like after some guys robbing a liquor store? But like, even that is a super convoluted thing. Cause it's not, I agree. It was, and then it made Common's character. Like then again, who cares? Like you're, you're doing all this pretend stuff. And it's like at the end, like, why did we even really have to follow him then in these occasional scenes where he's with his partner in the office, like, you know, getting mad that these guys are getting out or they, you know, these the new ladies are in town taking over. Like, it was all this act and it just didn't make sense, though, of like, why do I care about Common's character then? Like, what what is he adding to this story? Because, again, it's all fake. And then there's right. And I, I think just part of coming back to a truth, though, with that is just like you need to have a connection to these characters and their motivations have to be real and even Tiffany Haddish's character, you're like, okay, so you want to be able to get incorporate yourself in this kind of club, which is just these white Irish people. And she was this, you know, uh, black woman. And she thought her only way in was to do this. But it's still, to me, the whole general story would have just been stronger if she was just part of this crew because she somehow fell into it. But then she took control of her life within the circumstances that she was dealt rather than sort of trying to manipulate all this stuff, which seemed less, less, you know, satisfying for her character, it seemed like. Yeah, and I think that was the thing that really made it unbelievable because when you're watching her character go through it, what you, what I thought we were watching and what I think most people thought we were watching is somebody discovering that they could be powerful. And while Melissa McCarthy's character is fighting to maintain the status quo, like to keep everything going and make it better with kind of this idea of their husband's going to come back and they're kind of going to work together and they're going to like, this will all be fine. And then we'll make a better mob. Like, and you know, Elizabeth's boss character goes really dark and likes the psychotic stuff. But then with the Tiffany Haddish character, 
it felt like what you were watching is somebody who was learning that they could be strong. And if they could learn to be strong, then why are we stopping at Hell's Kitchen? Why can't I go uptown? Why can't I take Harlem? Why can't I take the Bronx? Why can't I like go over and take Brooklyn and Queens and Manhattan? Like you could see somebody starting to realize like, wait a minute, I didn't think this was possible. Now I can do anything. And then which was a really fun realization and you see her getting more and more greedy and she kills the mother-in-law that just pushes her down the stairs like she doesn't even care. I was like, wow, like she's really going for it. And then you undercut all that by being like, oh yeah, and Common was working with me all along and this was always the plan. Like this marriage was set up to be part of the mob and everything. I was like, what? And I see what you're saying because it, it just didn't feel true to who their characters that they were setting up. And then all of a sudden at the end of the movie, they pull these twists, which you hear a lot of people complain. That's like, I guess, more critics like they say that plot twists are bad because then you're just setting it up all around just this one idea. And you're making these characters out to be one thing. But then in the end, there's somebody completely else, but not in like a true way. It's just this false equivalence of, of trying to put these two and two together. But then it, it doesn't work out. Yeah, and I think there is the the best twists, if, you know, and it's hard to talk about truth without talking about twists because the best twists come from something that's so true that, and we've so bought into a character that they don't see it coming and we don't see it coming. And it blindsides everybody in a way that was completely inevitable. I mean, you can look back at, you know, the usual suspects where you have a character that the whole movie is focused on the entire time. So while you may think whatever you think of Verbal Kent, um, the Kevin Spacey character throughout the whole thing, the entire movie is based on Kevin Spacey's character and what he's doing. So we as an audience already are getting, he's the main character. He's the guy. So when you have that twist at the end that he's Kaiser Soze, that doesn't, that shocks us because we should have seen it coming because like who did we think it was gonna be you know like you're supposed to think it's gabriel Byrne, but like we walked the whole time we watched him do everything he was doing and we watched it all and it blindsides us and it blindsides dave coolion and it blindsides gabriel Byrne. like it blindsides everybody with something that is so just patently true throughout the whole thing but even in the movie when you first see it the first time at the very end they walk you through all of the pieces of information they kind of gave you his character kind of just wheeled off on the spot based yeah. off his environment but anyway again that though stayed true to who his character was both the mythological character that was created within the story and then also his character that they made for this story. Like it still fit with what his purpose was, what his intentions were. He was just trying to get out of that whole situation. And so he was creating this whole random tale to kind of throw the police off the scent. But that was what he was trying to do. And that was the thing that was so brilliant about it because it's serving the dual purpose in a lot of things where we're watching verbal Kent, like the Kevin Spacey character, try and try and try and convince Dean Keaton, the Gabriel Byrne character, to join this crew to be part of this attack. And what we're watching is we think that we're watching somebody who's insecure and needs Gabriel Byrne. But what you realize at the end is he knew 
that Gabriel Byrne was so hated by the New York Police Department that they were going to try and pin this on him no matter what. So if he didn't have Gabriel Byrne, they would have looked for, they would have never believed in this tale of Kaiser Soze. They never would have believed any of it, but it's only that he drove Gabriel Byrne into it that made this whole thing possible. And that's that dual thing where we're like, yeah, we're with you. We need him in this so that Verbal's in, but it's like, no, Kaiser Sose needs him in so that that's the clean getaway because once Gabriel Byrne goes down and once he's dead, everybody knows he was Kaiser Sose and then the, it can just be put underground again. And that's the truth. But what was so clever about but what was so clever about that movie too was the way they presented to you the audience the story that Verbal Kent was telling and you go along for the ride believing that that's the actual story when in fact it's yes. not you are the Chaz Palminteri character being just you know hoodwinked by Kevin Spacey's character what was so great about it but again they stayed true to who the character was like they built it around that uh, Kevin Spacey character and they built out from that rather than just this twist idea and then trying to create things around that twist idea um, so those are different things and and one thing we can touch on real quick and let's make this quick this could be I don't know a big tangent but like I think that fits in both with the character motivation and the rules setup is the final season of Game of Thrones uh, now do we, be be careful I'm, I'm gonna hold it I'm gonna I'm gonna keep us real tight on this one so small quick points <laughs> Uh, and we, we've gone over this before, but I do listen, I, listen. I still like to try to give it a rose colored glasses look at the last season, but I do understand the frustration and what happens with everybody's final season watching that. And it did break a lot of the rules that they set up. Like we said, there, they had uh, five to six seasons of setting up a whole bunch of rules. And then they really did. In order of expediency, it seemed like threw a lot of them out the window. I still think they got to the end of where they wanted to and they needed to, and the character did what it was supposed to. I just do think then they took some shortcuts that broke some rules and didn't allow the the one of the rules was time. Everything takes time in Game of Thrones, and I think by cutting out that section of it, it it threw people off and made them angry. Where they the characters need time to you know change or move through their arcs and they really uh short-circuited that in the final season for the sake of finishing it off and i i think that was their main problem amongst other rules that they broke though but that was to me the main rule was time i think you're 100 right i i don't think that where everybody ended up in game of thrones is not where they should have gone i i think there was like, I know that there's people who are going to complain that they think John should have been sitting on the throne or whatever. Like, there was no reason for him to come back from the dead or blah, blah, blah. I think you are 100% right. I think what happened is they knew where they wanted them to go. You knew Daenerys was going to have to be the Mad Queen. She was the daughter of the Mad King. You knew she was going to go crazy. You knew John was too virtuous to be on the throne. So you knew he wasn't going to get that happy ending because nobody gets a happy ending and you had you know Bran isn't that bad of a choice for being the one sitting on the throne because he's the one who sees everything and you have 
essentially almost like a godlike character sitting on the throne now that would be an entirely mystical person which it would be hard to right. play the game of thrones against him like it would be the end of the game because how can you rise against somebody who can be everywhere and see everything at all times and he had like kind of the virtue aspect of being a uh, a stark that was also allowed for some you know the, the, it fits the it, what hope maybe. maybe he also i know presumably in the rules of this he also let thousands die so he could do this all that to say they got to a place that would have been a satisfying ending had they not turned people so quickly at breakneck speed that it felt like you were breaking who they were because everything was so plotting and methodical that it would like you would have 10 minute scenes with just the hound and aria rolling through the like moors talking about like the philosophies of their lives and of, like killing people and death and all this stuff and it was interesting things what they were talking about but right that was part of the the ingrained tone right and he's growing a heart and she's like becoming colder and you see all this kind of like playing out and then you have within the course of like three episodes, you know, Daenerys turning from, you know, possible like sitting on the throne with John as her, you know, second to just burning a town down for no reason. Yeah. And that was the that was the biggest complaint was the turn. Everybody, I, I think I didn't mind again. I didn't mind the turn itself. I do understand, though, how quickly it happened. And you didn't get the satisfaction of like seeing the build or even if they again, if it was more methodical, it would have been even smaller little crumbs along the way. And they did lay out some crumbs in earlier seasons. That's why I think the the full ending is, is actually everywhere it should have been. But I think then they, they really ended up speeding it up. And even another three episodes, I think that was part of the problem was it did feel like everybody was trying to jump ship at the end almost. It seemed like the creative team was just spent and they kind of wanted to get this over with. Again, that is me just throwing that out there. It's been talked about. I I don't know anybody there and that could be – that's kind of – you know Sure. I, I, I don't like always talk about, you know, how, what's in people's mindsets, but that's what it felt like. Internet you know? rumor, and but whatever. Like, we can report internet rumors. They seem like they could have done it because their season was smaller than their typical seasons. It was only eight episodes versus, I think, a typical 10 to 12 episodes. And if you even had that 10, those two more episodes, I think they could have gotten there a little smoother landing into that final, that final touchdown. Yeah, and I think that is the biggest, you know, problem with that is they – the rule that they set up was that it takes a long time for these people to turn. And these, the gears of this game, this wheel that is going, take are very slow to turn and they're very unfair and unbending. And to have them turn at such a breakneck speed, you just feel like you're the machine's broken. And I think the thing that, you know made that so terrible was that like it just happened so quickly so you've you, you've broken that rule of time and then it makes it feel very very unbelievable right it doesn't feel true to who they were having those turns happen and the pace get escalated the way it did so i, I want to bring this back around then to the tiger king though yeah 
So speaking of kings and what about though the Tiger King then kind of did get you thinking about this idea of truth though. Then again, there's many aspects of truth when we're talking about story here is this, this is a documentary. Is people's reaction to this though because they see it as more reality uh, and I feel like that's happening more and more in movies and, and, and TV shows. There's this level of expectation that it has to feel more real and has to abide by more logical rules of our real world rather than some dramatic license that is typically allowed in fictional stories. And do you think that's why people get pulled into these type of docus like this? And, and because they're, they're so uh, fantastically crazy when you see this stuff happening but the fact that there's this element of truth to it because it's real people followed around by cameras rather than like you know scripted ideas do you do you think that's do you think that's this connection that people are pulling to this and do you think this is bleeding into more scripted programming as well and scripted stories that there has to be more you know real world logic in it and I, I get back to I've seen movie review sites that do this where they break down logic of like Marvel Avengers and where all these like plot holes are and stuff like that. And it's like, I used to get into that and I think, Oh, this is so clever and witty and like, yeah, look at all this stuff they're not thinking about. And then I'm like, I, after a while I got pulled back and I'm like, I'm ruining these movies I'm watching. Like I don't feel enjoy. I'm not enjoying them anymore because I'm, I'm all I'm doing is critiquing and, and uh, criticizing and then being um, cynical about them because all these little things, it's like, that's dramatic license. That's what you're allowed to do. It's like, that's part of like creating a story is the suspension of disbelief. And sure. I, yeah, I would say that I think that is one of the things that is one of the best parts of, um, creating something is that sometimes you, you can rip any movie apart. I think you can wrap any work of fiction apart with being like, well, this is, doesn't work or this is a plot hole or this just happened to, you know, this just lined up perfectly. They happen to be here when they were, and that's a thing. Where I think when you look at something like um, based on a true story, you don't have that because you're like, oh, well, that's just the way it happened. And, you know, you kind of lose that a lot in fiction. You got you to gotta show your work a lot more with fiction than you do in nonfiction. Um, I think a lot of it always comes down, though, to character. And I think with Joe Exotic, like that character, that guy who already was coming from a, like a drug addict life was not, you know, had like terrible, terrible struggles growing up and then found solace in these tigers, but also wasn't entire, isn't entirely a good person, is trying to make everything work together and is over his head, but would never admit that he's over his head type of personality. Once you see that happen, then all the crazy stuff that happens to him, you know, getting involved in a murder for hire plot, being obsessively posting on YouTube about this woman killing her husband, like all the way into, you know, selling his, you know, tiger ranch to a grifter who he who wined and dined him in Las Vegas like you. All that fits with that guy that's going to be that chaotic, only waiting for the next day, only seeing the, the, the pile of gold and everything like that. And I think when you have that character, you're going to constantly believe anything that happens from him. Um, just like if that character was written in fiction, I think you would still believe the story because it's so... 
out there and that guy is so there, the only complaint you would have would be like, I don't know anybody like this. I don't think this person is based on a real person. It's kind of like, you know, the Kramer character in Seinfeld. Like, you're like, well, I don't think this is actually based on a real, this person's too crazy to be based on a real person. And then, you know, it's based on a real person. Yeah, I I, that, I think that's a fantastic point there about if you actually looked at putting Tiger King into a fictional world where if somebody created the story and wrote a movie about it, what would be the connections and, re- and reactions to it? I don't think it'd be quite as, uh, I, I don't think it'd be, be quite as visceral and viral as this one has gone because there's something about this uh, based on true story or that a documentary has to it. And if it was just then a fully fabricated story, people I don't give it quite the same gravitas or connection that they do when it's for some reason, this based on true story, these real accounts have really caught these real accounts have really caught on in our, you know, movie viewing experiences now. And I, I feel like this has happened over the past 10 to 15 years. And I think more and more documentaries have been coming more, out more. I think more people have access to them, especially with streaming. Uh, I think this, it's interesting how it was made. It was uh, pretty much what would typically been just like a two hour documentary movie is broken down into seven parts. So you had seven, about 45 to 60 minute parts. You had more, more content to cover. You have more content to keep following. You have the binge model. I think there's a lot to it. I've, I've been reading a lot of complaints about how it was made as far as a style of documentary and like the way they use their characters, how they show the characters for the intentions of dramatic license and, you know, sensationalism and stuff like that. I don't care as much about that. Like people sign up, they all signed up for this. The, the To me, these people are terrible people to begin with. So I really have no pity for these people at all. And part of me is actually, I... I didn't really care that much for the documentary. At first I was caught up a little bit in the sensationalism, but then I just started to get to that feeling. I was just like, all these people are shitty. It's like they weren't focusing on then also the well-being of the animals as much. Like to me, that was actually the main story to me. And they, that was like relegated to like a, the D storyline with a little coda at the end of the entire uh, series of just like, Oh, there's a, this many animals in captivity that versus this less amount left out in the wild. And it's like, well, how does that, does that just, is that kind of absolve you of it? So that was my bigger yeah. problem. Like I fell into the camp that I didn't like it because they didn't focus enough on the animals. And I, I have a certain uh, soft spot for wild animals and captivity, any animals really that have, are under human control. Like it, it's just something that's like, it, it's one of those deep down things for me. Anyway, I just didn't connect with it then because of that type of stuff. And I, I, I just felt like, I'd rather get lost in something that's fictional and made up. And I am realizing more and more how much I enjoy that. And I feel like it's being more taken for granted than it used to be just because of this, this current trend of how things need to have this more realistic and logistical, uh, uh, understanding to them that's connected to our real world. No, I do know what you mean. It's actually really, I think that's really interesting, and I think it's a very interesting point that you bring up because we are in an era right now where things are not, you know, objectively not great. Um, you know, as we we're all sitting at home with, you know, the plague of the century, can we say that? Hanging out outside the door, like this is a historic moment, and yet everybody's sitting around watching documentaries. Like it isn't. Like, it isn't like some, they're watching, like, all the Marvel movies, or they're not, like, rushing to get the Fast and Furious movie onto 
you know, streaming so that everybody can see and have this escapism that we normally run to. We're in pretty much a golden age of documentaries that's probably been going on for about 10 years now. And I think, you know, I think reality television has helped shape a lot of filmmakers um, in a way of, of telling stories in a very slick manner and and educating people on how to tell that in a way that, that gets that across. But I think it also... like taught people how to watch true events and have it be a little messy and that be okay as well right like true the true crime has really blown up in the past five six years that's and that's an offshoot of all of what you're just talking about right now yeah and i think that's i think that's just all just a part of the times but i i agree with what you're saying in that like sometimes it is nice to just have that grand escape and to not have to worry about whether that monster that you just watched is real like at the end of the day like you know someone did hire a hitman and at the end of the day this woman may have like killed her husband and at the end of the day there's been a lot of abused tigers and people lost limbs and a lot of heartache and pain and a lot of things that people are going to be living with their entire lives and are going to ripple through families and it's nicer to walk out of a movie theater and be like, well, I'm glad that didn't happen to everybody. <laughs> Thank God they they got they broke all the infinity stones. Thanos did not wipe us off the planet. Right. So off the out of the universe. So we're all good. That's what I like. I mean, and listen, I, 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 I kind of objectively watch myself evolve how I interpret movies, how I watch movies, how I see things. And like, I kind of gave my anecdote a little earlier about one point in my life, I was watching a lot of these um, uh, loophole trailers, uh, you know, like these critical trailers kind of things. And I was in it. Like I said, I thought it was all cool and stuff until I realized it wasn't because I started to realize I wasn't having fun at the movies. And that's what I want to do. I want to go and have fun and movies. I would have like, earlier criticized even like the fast and furious movies like at a younger age i'm gonna all this stuff's just crazy it's just a bunch of blowing up stuff and like this not true art form stuff no now i just enjoy that stuff i really like it it's just fun you get to go to the movies you escape you see some stuff blow up you see some stuff you wouldn't see in real life and it's like it's all fake but that's great and i love that part of it and it i don't know i must must be getting a little soft in my as i get older here uh but that's just where I kind of go to. And I do think that you talked about how people have been learning to watch movies a certain way over the past 10, 15 years. And I agree with you hundred percent about that. And I almost feel like at a certain point, people have to kind of be retaught how to watch movies again in a degree. And again, uh, just because then everything gets so critical and we're very yeah. hypercritical and very cynical about how we see things. And, Sometimes you can just take a step back and just like it's fun to watch just something that's pretty classic or pretty good and like you don't have to be all always on the cutting edge stuff like that. You just have to have like good characters, a solid story with a good point of view and you really can make great movies that way. I also don't want to sound very like on a high horse here and everything. Everybody likes what they like. Like I the Tiger King's fine. I, I I'm not like rallying against the Tiger King or anything like that. Like it's fine. I just didn't end up like really having the same connection that everybody all over the internet seems to be having again i kind of explained some of the deep uh, you know reasons why i think i don't but right. that's fine you know if that's what it is right now that I, i'm also a, a person that's aware of like you can't control the times the trends are their trends that's the way they are you could i'll just try to do what i can do maybe to to work back to the way i like to see things that's all 
yeah, you just, you don't have to change the world. Not everybody has to like what you like. And that's, that's exactly what you're saying. That's the perfect, like, way to put it. It's like, you know, you like what you like. Everybody likes yeah. what they like. And when your stuff is on trend, then, you know, that'll be a great moment. And then when, you know, your stuff is not, it's, it's neat because as, you know, movies that, or genres that I really like, aren't at the forefront i just get this sense that there are people who are out there working on it and making something that'll be better as much as i love true crime stuff yeah. i like i said i devoured the podcast um on the tiger king before then watching the series on netflix um i also really love rom-coms and i am sad that there's not a lot more of them and a lot of good you know, rom-coms. I also like dance movies too. Um, so, and I like when they have really good ones of those that come out. And I think when you don't have those trends, then you know that like in the back, somebody's working on it and somebody's going to make that happen. And they will be, you know, the one that hits and then it'll be a big genre again. So, well, listen, we still live in a remake and a sequel era. So, you know, Channing Tatum's going to come back and step up five and all will be right in your That's world. That's true. That's true. I, I could I could watch a few more step up movies. I I have to say there is one that I will recommend. It's Burlesque with Christina Aguilera and Cher, which is only amazing because of a, the dance numbers. But secondly, because... The, it's about a burlesque house that's going under and they're like, how are we losing money? How are we losing money? And the dance numbers are so fantastical. I'm like, well, that obviously cost about $300,000 to put that on. And you only have like two people in the audience. I don't know how much they're drinking, but I can tell you where your money is going. Uh, it's simple. It's simple economics, yeah. Christina. Yeah. Come on. Well, come it was, on. Shares, it was Cher's burlesque house. I'm Just sorry, to be Cher. clear, I'm don't sorry. put it on Christina. I'm sorry, Cher. She saves the Cher. day. Spoiler alert. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> on that note, uh, do you have anything else to highlight or uh, spotlight or is the uh, burlesque house your spotlight of the week? I'm burlesque, but I'll also say, uh, quite honestly, check out Chrissy's Court on Quibi. Um, it is really funny. Chrissy Teigen does a really nice job. Um, I was involved with the production on the casting side of it, and um, it turned out really, really well. I was very interested in how it all turned out, and it it was great. So check it out. 90-day free trial on Quibi. So just you sign up through your iTunes, bibbidi-bop, and then you're done and then just set a reminder for 80 days from now well that is the show that everybody is talking about if there is a show on Quibi that people are talking about it is Christina's Court so go check it out and her mom is also on it she is the bailiff uh, so I hear some good things out of that uh, I will spotlight uh, the app that I use while we prep I prep for this podcast it's called Agenda and it's a note app uh, note taking app but the difference is their kind of twist on it is that it's tied to calendar your calendar so like when you have an event on your calendar and you're typing your notes in, you hit a button, you say, you know, you go find that event and it says link to this event. So then it'll put it in kind of the title section of whatever that uh, event is. So for each time I have our podcast in our calendar every uh, whenever it's scheduled, I link to it. So then I always have it linked back to that. Even then in the calendar uh, appointment, there's a, now a link 
to that note. So if I'm on my calendars app, I can just click that link and it'll take me then to the agenda app to that specific note. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a different mental model as far as how you kind of see notes. Like it took me a while to kind of get used to it, but, and it's, I don't use it as just my general dumping ground. Like I don't put everything in it. I'm learning to just use it for specific UK use cases uh, more when I have stuff scheduled and then I want to like, oh yeah, here's some thoughts or how I want to sketch out an outline for what I want to talk about or like what's going on during this event. Uh, and like this one, that's how I kind of, and that's what I, the note I send you is out of this agenda app. So it's really interesting and it still has like, you can put them in folders and all that type of thing. Uh, and then they also have a top of the line on the agenda today. So anything that's scheduled for like the, day, the this day, this present day, all will be pulled up to just on the agenda so you can kind of see your whole day in notes that you have going on. So again, it's a weird model, but it, after a while, if you kind of work with it a little bit, you, it'll fit into your uh, workflow. So that's what I have for this week. So Tony, uh, some fantastic conversation this week. So uh, yeah, thanks for joining same, me again. Same. All right, uh, we'll catch you next time. Uh, Tony, where can everybody reach you at? Uh, you can reach me on all the socials at Anthony Hudax. All right, wonderful. And you can reach me at on Twitter at jstrabs. And uh, also uh, check out my blog at creativedifferences.co. And until next time, I'll talk to you then, Tony. Talk to you later. Bye.